Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, January 13th, and we're talking about top healthcare stocks for 2021. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's happy head honcho of ho-hum healthcare hunches, Brian Faroldi. Brian, how are you doing? Dylan, happy Wednesday to you, my friend. Happy Wednesday. Always love getting in the mix on Wednesday because it gets me outside of what I normally talk about. I'm usually pretty head down in the tech world. We get to do whatever we want here on the Wildcard Show, Brian. And uh, we did our top stocks last week for 2021. Had a bunch of different sectors represented there, but I don't think we really had a show dedicated to the healthcare space. We are going to fix that today. I, for one, miss having Wednesday be the healthcare-only episode, so doing my best to make sure that healthcare is represented on Industry Focus. <laughs> you got to be an advocate, and that's because you have the background in the space. And you know what? You're an awesome teacher, so even though I don't, Brian, I feel like you kind of hold my hand along the way and give me enough confidence to throw some names out there as well. On today's episode, we're going to be throwing three specific stocks out there that look like interesting buys for 2021. Brian's got two. I've got one. It should be a fun one. Absolutely. Let's get into it. <laughs> all right, Brian. So I'm going to let you go first. We'll go Brian, Dylan, Brian, just to kind of mix it up a little bit so no one's talking too, too much all at once. Your first stock is Semler Scientific. You want to walk through that one a little bit? This is a company that I've pitched multiple times now on Industry Focus, and the more I dig into it, the more I look at it, uh, the more I like it. The ticker here is SMLR. As we've stated numerous times, the, this company does not trade on the NASDAQ or NYSE. It trades over the counter. So if you're interested in this stock, just know it trades over the counter, which means very, very low liquidity. And that can kind of do crazy things to the price uh, in the short term. But if you can overlook that, there's a lot to like about this company. Semler is focused on making diagnostic products that, are, uh, that help to uh, people with peripheral artery disease. Peripheral artery disease is simply the narrowing of the arteries in the body due to the progressive buildup of fat. Uh, P, uh, that's called PAD. PAD is a huge health problem. If you have PAD, blood is not getting to your extremities, and you are four times more likely to die of a heart attack and two to three times more likely to die of a stroke. There are lots of treatments for PAD, but the big problem is we are bad at diagnosing it. That's for a number of reasons. Uh, most have to do with the current standard of care is to use a blood pressure cuff, which takes a lot of time in the doctor's office, has to be performed by a uh, vascular technician to be done properly, and there just isn't a fast, easy way uh, to diagnose PAD. That's where Semler Scientific comes in. They invented this product called Quantiflow, which is a little tiny clip that goes onto the patient's fingers and toes uh, before their, their um, healthcare meeting is underway. And the little clip then uh, measures the flow of blood to their extremities. And it produces a report uh, within a matter of a few minutes that lets the provider know if blood is flowing to their extremities. If there is an obstruction of any kind, the provider can uh, get that information in their hands right away, and they can take the necessary uh, actions. So this is a technology that helps to diagnose something that is currently chronically underdiagnosed. 
And that's a, a good spot to be in. I mean, this is, we talk about it often when we look at healthcare companies, Brian, but really when you can find something that leads to generally better patient outcomes and um, maybe makes it a little bit easier for the folks that are administering whatever procedures might be happening, that, that tends to be a good spot to be operating in as a healthcare business. I think over the next 10 years, there's going to be a big shift away from treating towards preventing, and Semler plays right into that trend. Now, the exciting thing for Semler as an investment, the technology is very, very cool. But if they were selling clips, that uh, hardware, I would not be interested in this company at all. What excites me about this company is the business model that they have chosen is based on, wait for it, software, Dylan. So... <laughs> Rather than charging for, for the clip, although they do charge some places for it, for the clip itself, they charge for the software that creates the report. And physician offices can either pay a fixed monthly, uh, monthly fee, or they can pay each time a report uh, is produced. Because that's the business model that they chose, this company has some jaw-dropping margins. In the most recent quarter, revenue grew 21%, which isn't Barn burning, but that's pretty good considering 2020, a whole bunch of doctor's offices were closed down. The exciting thing about this number, while it's still pretty small in absolute terms at about $10.7 million, is the gross margin here is 92%. And that figure was up year over year. That's the power of selling software. Yeah, I spent a little bit of time looking at this business before we hopped on and I, I almost thought it was a mistake, Brian, when, 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 I, when I looked at the margin profile, you know, over the last 12 months for this business, uh, 35, just, just under 36 million in revenue and 32.4 million in gross profit. It, it almost seems like a misprint. It's so high. It's, it's crazy. And again, that figure was up from the high 80s uh, in the previous year. Now, what's equally as exciting is this is an extremely lean uh, organization, extremely lean. They've been growing their sales and marketing expense over time to get this product into the hands of, of more providers. But they reported in the last quarter on $10.7 million, $10 million in revenue, $4.8 million in net income. That is a net after all expenses are taken out, a net margin over 40%. And that wasn't a fluke. That was their 12th quarter in a row of profits. This business is highly profitable, cranks out free cash flow, and they have a balance sheet that showcases that strength. $16 million in cash, no debt. Financially, this company, while small, is incredibly strong. Yeah, Brian, I, th I think what's hard to wrap your head around because of the way that COVID hit this business is is almost what an appropriate growth rate is and what to reasonably expect when it comes to the top line for this business. But so that folks can kind of understand where they are, this is, this is a company that denominates its market cap in millions, not billions. And they are already profitable and... Should that growth come back in the in the subsequent quarters as people start returning and maybe being a little bit more comfortable going to physical doctor's offices, I, I have to imagine that it's going to flow through everywhere else. I mean, it, it just seems like this was something that was already on a pretty nice growth rate and then had that interrupted. But going back to normal will only mean good things for this company. To your point, Dylan, this company's current market cap is about five hundred and seventy million, and it's been it's been publicly traded for a long time, and it is up enormously over the last uh, five years. A, a multi multi bagger. So this was this was a, a company that was been public for a while and was very very small uh, at one point, but that number has grown. Uh, the market cap has grown substantially. 
Something else that caught my eye in this most recent report was I'm getting the sense that this company has some optionality uh, to it. In the most recent report, I hear, quote unquote, we entered into a marketing and distribution agreement with a private company on an exclusive basis in the U.S. and Puerto Rico in a new product area. So they signed a deal with a product that they think is exciting, and they also made a bridge loan to a private company working in a second product area. So not only does their main moneymaker now, Quantiflow, have tremendous room uh, for growth just in the US, let alone the world, but they're already thinking ahead and are making investments to develop new product lines. Yeah, Brian, I think it might be worth kind of talking a little bit about what the TAM looks like for this business and what the overall opportunity is. Because particularly when we talk about um, procedures and, and things that people don't personally have to use in, in the healthcare space, um, it's it's a little hard to understand how big the patient population might be for the products from the companies that make them. That's a hard number to wrap our head around right now because the company, from what I've seen, doesn't provide any hard data that says, this is our TAM, this is how much we have, this is how many doctor's offices we have, etc. However, they believe, uh, and I think they have an, an argument, that this should be the standard of care for basically every regular doctor uh, doctor visit that happens in the United States. And they think that in the U.S. alone, about 80 million Americans should be screened annually. So they're currently targeting about 300,000 or so doctor's offices uh, as potential partners. One way that they're doing that is they're actually working with insurance companies because, because again, if their technology can identify high-risk patient, I mean, how many patients do you have to keep out of the ER from a, a heart attack or a stroke to pay for this system for uh, a year? I mean, it's really, it's really not much. So there is a number of people that uh, that win here. And while again, we don't have an exact scale of how long this, how big this company can be, their quarterly revenue is 11 million, Dylan. So I think there's room for that number to grow. Yeah, it's always helpful when you can start running through some of the quick hand valuation metrics and actually have an E to work with in that PE ratio. <laughs> That's exactly right. Now, this company is not uh, risk-free by by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, the biggest risk that uh, that they have is the one that I highlighted every time I talk about them, which is this company has some serious customer concentration uh, issues. Their number one customer is 40% of sales. Their number two customer is 30% of sales. I'm Almost positive that those are health plans, such as like a Blue Cross Blue Shield and United, and they're all bundled into one, as opposed to any given one practice or one office. But make no mistake, there is some customer concentration here. If, for whatever reason, one of those two customers were to defect, this company would get hurt badly. Yeah. And I, and I think given the financials that they have, they'd be able to weather that, uh, at least short term, Brian. And this is not a, a unique risk. You know, when we're talking about companies that are sub billion dollars, this is often customer concentration, a very common trait of those companies. You just hope to see that those percentages dip a little bit more over time and you start to see that spread out a little bit more. That that is the hope. Now, offsetting that risk. So again, the the customer concentration, big problem here. The fact that they trade OTC, uh, potentially a big problem here. I've actually heard from some people on Twitter that they try. They were interested in this company, and their broker did not allow them to buy shares uh, for whatever reason. So offsetting those negatives is the fact that this company is highly profitable and. Because there's an E working with here, we actually have a PE ratio to look at, Dylan. How novel. And this company is currently trading at 43 times analyst estimates for earnings in 2021. 43 times. That is E, not sales. So 
that is not, in my opinion, a very high number. You know, given where things are, Brian, 40 times sales is something that people might not even balk at. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just becoming par for the course, especially with a a company that has 90% gross margins. (laughs) That's right. So if if this company can grow at all, uh, let alone uh, match anywhere near its growth rates in in past years, uh, I think the valuation today is pretty darn attractive. All right. So, Brian, you're pitching something that is, I think, somewhat reliant on the physical medical model, right? We, we talked about how there were interruptions with 2020 for them, and, and that might have gotten in the way of their, some of their growth rates. My stock for 2021 is one that I think a lot of fools are going to know, um, but it specializes in the virtual delivery of healthcare services, and that is Teladoc. Um, they are really the leader when it comes to virtual healthcare services. They have medical professionals and video conferencing telehealth system. You can see a doctor without leaving the home. That's that's kind of the simple value prop pitch uh, for customers. And Brian, when I look at this company, what, what I see on the patient side is huge benefits for folks that have difficult chronic conditions, huge benefits for people who live in remote areas, and also huge benefits for people that are short on time. There's no doubt about that. I mean, just like I think Semler was a pretty much win-win-win for all parties involved, you could make a very strong argument that Teladoc and video conferencing uh, has the same thing. And I'll throw in one more stakeholder there, Dylan. A lot of doctors moonlight on Teladoc and sell their services in ancillary ways by, by partnering with, uh, with Teladoc in their, in their off hours. So you could make an argument that that's a big win for providers that want to in- up their income too. I appreciate you strengthening my bull case there, Brian. <laughs> um, the, the company has two main revenue streams, and and this is going to sound similar to Brian's pitch, recurring subscription revenue fees uh, from clients who want insured patients to have access to their health, health telehealth systems. Um, and then they also have a per-visit fee revenue stream as well. Brian, I, I feel like basically anytime we say recurring revenue, a stock gets its wings uh, on this show. But it, it's something that is so attractive to us, and, and particularly with this business, because I think it shows that they have institutional buy-in. And that's that's a really important thing in the healthcare space when you're working with insurers. It also, for their purposes, kind of gives them a critical mass of users and members. To me, it signals at this point with about 50 million, they're not going anywhere. You know, This, this isn't like a flash in the pan type fad. This company definitely has the network effect working for it, where if you are a patient or a health plan and you're trying to pick a uh, video conferencing provider to work with, it makes sense to go with the company that has the most doctors, the most patients, the most insurance plans, et cetera. So that is definitely working in Teladoc's favor. Yeah. And and the business, as you might expect, in 2020 had a monster year. Um, The tailwinds were already there and really just Everything that happened in the year uh, of the pandemic really pushed those things forward. Um, shares wound up being up over 140% last year. And there are a couple big reasons for that. There was the acceleration of growth trends. Um, if you just look at their quarterly growth rates year over year, Q4 2019, 27%. Q1 2020, 41%. Q2 2020, 85%. Q3 2020, 109%. So they saw a massive acceleration. They also bet pretty big on the future of their business with the acquisition of Livongo Health. And so I think those two things really caused... A lot of expectations to be built into the stock uh, and a lot of people starting to wonder exactly where it might be going long term. But I think like we talked about with Mercado Libre last week, Brian, this is a business that was already going to be benefiting from kind of where the puck was going. And then the pandemic created a step change in adoption. The key for them is going to be keeping the folks who wound up turning to virtual medicine on the telehealth system once they're able to go back to doctor's offices. 
I think this is definitely a company that ben- that that will benefit in the long term uh, uh, from COVID with the uh, habit changes that people have, where they were forced to get used to to telemedicine. And and once you do it, I can see that being so simple and so easy that that you will use that uh, even uh, post-pandemic. You brought up an uh, interesting point there that I think is was the big story uh, in 2020 was their acquisition of Livongo Health, which is a company that does uh, real-time coaching uh, for um, for disease management. Specifically, their core market was diabetes, but they were getting into some other areas. That was a huge deal uh, when it was announced because it was an acquisition, but those two companies were pretty comparable in size. So 2021 is going to be a year of integration for them. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest opportunities and simultaneously one of the biggest risks for this business. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about acquisitions, it's a fairly large company buying a pretty small business. And you say, okay, well, if you're an $80 billion company and you're buying something worth $5 billion, it's a lot of money to commit to it. But if you need to write it off at some point in the future, you can probably weather that pretty well. In this case, it was basically a merger of equals. It was an $18 billion business. Um, I think it was 18.5 was the, the final close. And at the time, I think Teladoc was probably somewhere in the high teens in their valuation. So they basically doubled the size of their company with their acquisition. And Livongo did not have a particularly large revenue base to build off of. They, like, like Teladoc, were in a spot where so much of the value is what that business will become, not what it currently is right now. On paper, the deal made a lot of sense. And the acquisition wasn't necessarily new for Teladoc. If you look at the company's history, it actually has made numerous acquisitions over its uh, over its history to both uh, consolidate market share in the U.S. as well as expand into international markets. However, nothing matches the scale that was uh, the Lavago House uh, acquisition. So, to your point, tremendous potential, also tremendous risk with execution. Yeah, and the potential for them really comes in the idea that they can expand beyond their core patient-doctor relationships. And you said optionality before when you were talking about your stock. I'm going to invoke that as well here, Brian, because I think what they are really trying to do is think about the overall healthcare ecosystem, think about clinics, hospitals, and insurers, and really broaden out what their market is. What I like about the business is they are by far the leader in a relatively nascent space that I imagine is only going to continue to grow over time. And they have this optionality where they can dramatically expand the size of their TAM over time with this acquisition, with their InTouch Health um, acquisition as well, and and really start to build something that is pretty defensible and, and pretty strong in the competitive environment. I agree with you there. I mean, 2020, there was definitely a lot of experimentation uh, with getting video conferencing up and going. Telehealth was definitely a big theme. And there's also, I could easily see a lot of room for um, continued growth and and, and new products that come out that make telehealth even easier. I mean, Livongo had a blood glucose meter that was used for people with diabetes that automatically uploaded the results to this central repository. They also were working on products for, uh, for weight management, for cholesterol. So, as those products become more and more popular, cheaper and cheaper, telehealth to me is just going to grow. Yeah. And we've seen some incredible numbers from 2020. I think one of the tough things with this business is what what does 2021 look like? And you know what, what do things look like when people are able to regularly go back to work, feel a little bit more comfortable entering physical spaces, all of that kind of stuff? Because you know they, they break out a lot of their core business metrics by a couple different categories, depending on whether they're in the paid or the non-paid membership structure. But you look across the board, when it comes to their visits, 
all of them were up triple digit percentages in the United States. Some of them 200%, 300% year over year. That's massive. It's hard to know how those numbers shake out long term, but if you can keep some of those people around and keep them happy, particularly keep that US paid membership relatively steady, I think once people are in the system, they'll continue to use it, um, but it does remain kind of an existential risk for them. Um, Brian, I, I think the, the one other thing with this is often when we see growth get pulled forward so dramatically, like it did in the case of Teladoc, it can take a little while for a stock to live up to the valuation. And they have both the the virtual growth and the virtual adoption happening, but the acquisition happening as well. And there is, there's not a lot there in terms of business results to back up um, so much of what we currently see in terms of valuation hinges on their ability to execute down the line. I say all of that because we're talking about healthcare stocks for 2021, but I think that this is certainly one where 2021 might be a weird year. It might be <laughs> it, it might be one where you're you're buying and, and you're seeing the thesis really play out over three, five, ten years. That's how we tend to look at everything, but I really want to emphasize it for this one because the, the growth rates could be kind of weird. They were so so fast, so dramatically um, in 2020, and it's hard to know exactly how they're gonna shake out. That's fair enough. And yeah, the stock has basically traded sideways uh, for the last six months. I mean, I, but I think a lot of that is just because the run prior to that was so huge. And Livongo Health was also on just a massive tear. And Wall Street is basically saying, this acquisition makes sense. Prove it to us. And 2020 will be there. 2021 will be their year to do it. Exactly. And so we're always talking long term, Brian, but we don't want to make any confusion about this one. I'm not saying, you know, check in with me on December 30th uh, of 2021 on this one. Check in with me on December 30th, 2025 on this one. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough, Dylan. <laughs> All right, Brian, what is your third stock to round out our healthcare basket for 2021? This one is a new one, I think, to to industry focus. I don't remember ever talking about it uh, before, but I've really gotten to know this company better over the last couple of months, and uh, there's a like there's a lot to like about this. So this company is called uh, Progeny. Uh, the ticker symbol here is PGNY. Dylan, before I put this uh, on your radar today, had you heard of this company? No, and that's that's one of my favorite things with, with kicking ideas around with you, Brian. You and Joey Salitro. I feel like I get slack sometimes. And I'm like. I couldn't even guess what that business does. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, this company is focused on uh, the fertility uh, market. And I love companies that are mission-driven. Uh, this company is definitely mission-driven. And their mission is to make any member's dream of parenthood uh, come true. So if you know anything about the fertility market, or if you've ever had talked to anybody that's had fertility issues, it's an extremely uh, common uh, problem. About one and out of every eight couples uh, in the United States alone has a problem or has trouble uh, getting pregnant. And this number is only growing over, over time. Uh, one of the key reasons why is Couples are choosing to have kids later and later uh, in life as they work on their careers uh, earlier. So, the longer the longer you wait, the typically harder it can be to get uh, to get pregnant. So that is a market that um, Progeny is focused on. Huge market already. This is a seven billion dollar market in the U.S. Uh, and it's growing about ten uh, percent per year. But when you dig in, uh, the current fertility market is basically uh, broken. It's it's very uh, it's very outdated. If you are uh, somebody that is trying to to get pregnant. There isn't a easy way for you to do so. Uh, some employers offer benefits for for it, but you the uh, you the employee are essentially on your own. You're given a pamphlet and say, hey, here's the benefits that we offer. Uh, go figure it out. 
And if you are trying to, if you are having trouble getting pregnant and uh, you are you are having having trouble, it can be extremely expensive uh, to, to, to try. Extremely expensive. Uh, the average cost is currently $67,000 for, uh, for the average uh, couple. And the benefits that are out there rarely cover that, uh, that number in, in full. Uh, it's also patients are basically left on their own to figure out how to, how to go through that, that process by themselves. Progeny uh, comes in and they partner with large employers to basically simplify the entire process and make it better for uh, for for everyone. So Progeny has built up a, a nationwide network of 800 of the top fertility specialists um, in the U.S. And when they are uh, hired by a company, every time an employee raises their hand and says, "I'm having uh, trouble getting pregnant." Progeny assigns them with a patient care advocate who essentially acts as a centralized resource uh, for decision-making and care uh, coordination. Uh, Progeny also greatly simplifies uh, the cost uh, period by offering these things that they call smart cycles, which are basically all-inclusive uh, treatment bundles uh, up front that, that the, uh, the member can, uh, can go through to determine their course of treatment. Doing so removes a lot of the financial uncertainty and it gives the employee uh, someone to talk to and make decisions uh, on. Progeny has built up a huge database uh, over the last uh, couple years that it can go through and to, to make uh, decision-making much easier. And they have the clinical outcomes to prove that by partnering with them, uh, there is much less waste, there is much higher outcomes, and there is better productivity and a much higher chance of having a successful uh, pregnancy. So Brian, just the, the business part of this aside, I 100% buy that argument. Because I think when when you're talking about this space in general, you know there are some parts of healthcare that feel taboo and very isolating, very difficult to talk about. And you know I'm not in this position. Um, I, I don't have kids, and, and they're not quite on my short-term radar. But I know friends that have had a hard time conceiving, and it's a really tough thing to go through. It's a really hard thing to talk about. And I, I have to imagine feeling like you have a team, feeling like you have a support network, is probably a huge part of patient success and probably better outcomes. I mean, can you imagine just the emotional drain of going through that process, let alone having to fork over potentially tens of thousands of dollars and then having the odds stacked against you uh, of succeeding? So Progeny, again, sells its services. They primarily target target large self-insured companies out there. And this is a benefit that is increasingly becoming uh, in demand and and asked for. Uh, Currently, they say that about 50% of large employers offer some kind of benefit, but this number is going to, uh, to grow over time. Progeny is the top dog uh, in this space, and they stand out for a couple reasons. First off, they have the largest pool of clinical data uh, to point to that says, hey, look, you partner with us, and uh, not only do you get better outcomes, but there's also cost savings uh, uh, down the road through uh, a number of of ways, uh, including uh, reduced absenteeism and and improved uh, employee uh, retention uh, over time. And they also can help the um, help the employee to coordinate their pharmacy uh, products on top of this. So not only do they help with the handholding and the decision making, but they can also t- help to ensure that the pharmaceutical products get into the patient's ham and are actually used at the right time. That 
not only simplifies things, but leads to huge uh, clinical outcome gains. So very exciting product. Yeah, this is this is an interesting one, Brian, and one that I'm really like, I, I, having seen enough news stories about this being offered as a benefit, it's really interesting to now hear about the company that is behind some of this stuff because, you know, you see anecdotally the stuff coming out of Silicon Valley and big tech where there's kind of the arms race to continue to offer better benefits as a, as a means of employee retention. Um, I didn't realize that this was the business that was behind it. Yep, this is the this is the top dog, and and to your point, uh, Dylan, this company did get its start uh, in uh, in the Silicon Valley area, and a lot of their first customers were some of the biggest tech companies in the world. I mean, they count uh, Microsoft, uh, Google, PayPal, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, as clients. However. They have consistently over time moved into different markets and attracted employers. They have currently have over 150, 180 clients uh, from a 25 plus uh, industries. And this includes companies like uh, Unilever, uh, Hershey's, uh, Lincoln Financial. So while the benefit was initially aimed at uh, t- uh, Silicon Valley tech companies, uh, a lot of companies are warming up to the idea of offering this to their employees. All right, let's talk a little bit about what the books look like. I feel like this was one that needed a lot of explanation up front so people could really wrap their head around it and, and we gave it to them. But we should probably talk a little bit about the financials as well. Well, the story gets more exciting from there if you buy the thesis uh, uh, so far. So uh, last, so I thought initially that 2020 was going to be a really tough year for this company. I thought companies were going to be pulling back uh, on benefits to, to save money and that was really going to inhibit this company's growth. Apparently, I was wrong uh, because last quarter, this company reported 62% revenue growth uh, to $99 million. Now, they generate revenue, again, in two primary ways. The first is through fertility uh, benefits, and that was that's the majority of revenue today. A few years ago, they started offering the ability to offer pharmacy benefits uh, too for fertility, and that business grew 131% uh, last quarter to $26 million. Now, because this is primarily a service business, the gross margins here are are low. So last quarter, the gross margin was 21.1%. That was up 100 basis points over the prior year. So just understand that going in. This is a lower margin business. Now, despite having a relatively low margin, what excites me about this business is they've already reached profitability. Last quarter, $5.3 million in, in profits. So that's a net margin of about 5%. That's pretty impressive, given that the gross margin here uh, is about 21%. They also came public just about uh, uh, 18 months or so ago. Very clean balance sheet, $110 million in cash, zero debt. So the financials here, while not very high margin, are very strong. Who are you and what have you done with Brian Feroldi? <laughs> bringing, bringing two profitable companies to the discussion, Brian. I, I, I don't know. I, if it wasn't for Zoom where I could see your face, I would think I was talking to somebody else. Dylan, they both have <laughs> recurring revenue. Don't worry, I haven't lost my mind. Uh, and this company actually just had uh, gave a presentation at a very important healthcare conference, and they actually gave guidance already for 2021. So while they're going to report, uh, again, 60% revenue growth in the most recent quarter, they expect that number to remain very high. For 2021, they're expecting revenue growth of at least 53%, at least 53%. So this company is growing fast, and they expect to continue doing so for a while. Yeah. And what do you see when you look out at the overall potential for them? Because I think, like some of the other you know, discussions we've had today, this is, again, kind of a tough one for people to wrap their head around market-wise, because unless you're in this space, you're probably not too familiar with it. 
So again, they currently have about 181 clients. They do target large self-insured uh, businesses, and they believe that in the United States, uh, they, 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 they could potentially sign on about 8,000 uh, total customers. So they are only scratching the service uh, there. Now, they have already captured a lot of the Biggest companies, I mean, as I said, Google, Microsoft, uh, uh, et cetera, but they think there's plenty of room for them to grow uh, just in the U.S. with their current opportunities. They have said that longer term, uh, they, they, they plan to grow within their existing client bases as well as launch new services, just like they did a few years ago successfully with the pharmacy uh, benefit. And then there's also the potential for this company longer term uh, to sell their services uh, to uh, universities, uh, governments, uh, labor unions, uh, et cetera. So they believe that their growth is just getting started. Yeah, I, I guess we don't need to be so limited in how we look at benefits being offered, right? It's not it's not just traditional work that we can extend this to. It's something where, you know, if, if you have a collective of people and there's insurance being offered, there's probably a fit for them somewhere. I think that that's right. Now, again, because there's earnings here, Dylan, uh, earnings, uh, there is a P.E. ratio uh, to look at. So the trailing one isn't too impressive, uh, but we're at the point that I think it makes dark sense to look at the forward uh, P.E. earnings ratio for 2021. This company is currently trading at about 110 times uh, next year's uh, earnings estimates. That's a high number. Given the growth rates here, I don't think that's insane. That is a high valuation, though, so that is a risk for investors to watch. The other question that I have about this business is, is this a nice-to-have benefit or is it a need-to-have benefit? That's a question that I had in 2020, and given the growth that they put up in 2020, I kind of think this is almost a need-to-have benefit, or at least it's going to become that way. The other question that I have is, how durable uh, is the the moat? Uh, they think they say that their size and their scale gives them a competitive edge, again, as well as their data. Uh, that was a question that I had. One of the things they point out is that two-thirds of the companies that, they, that they've signed up so far switched from another provider. So the name is out there, and they clearly have the data that is resonating with employers. Yeah, and I think that their model and approaching employers rather than being a consumer-facing business helps them out a lot on the moat side, helps them out a lot when it comes to the need to have, nice to have, and you know the the budget element of this when you're you're looking at the costs. Um, I think this is a much tougher pitch if you're direct to consumer. I think it is too, but uh, the way that they're going at it, clearly they're having success and the business model is working. So, Brian, we talked about three businesses. You pitched two. I pitched one. Uh, do you own the two that you pitched? I own similar. I do not own Progeny yet. Okay. So, is this this is a watch list, possibly when it clears for you, uh, type stock that you might be buying? That is exactly the way to classify it, Dylan. <laughs> Got it. Um, and I would, I would put Teladoc in the same space for me. In the interest of transparency, folks know that uh, I'm planning on doing a good amount of buying in 2021, and Teladoc is probably in the top 10 to 15 stocks on that list. Awesome. <laughs> I know, Brian, that one of your ultimate goals, you, you joked with me on Slack, is to have me buy Pinterest and Semler this year. You've already, you've already got me on Pinterest. We'll see on Semler. Those, right. margins, those margins are just uh, too outrageous for me to ignore. I've got 11 and a half months to keep bringing it up, so it's going to happen, Dylan. <laughs> Resolutions are important, folks. You got to aim big. That's right. <laughs> Brian, thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Thanks, Dylan. Great to be here. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.